Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 108 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We are still socially apart. Yes, we are. But in our hearts, we're together <laughs> <laughs> with the power of technology. Yes. So we're thankful for that. And we hope you guys are all safe and healthy out there in the yeah. world. We're yeah. all doing our best, I know. Yeah, keep wearing those masks, everybody. Yeah. I know it's on the rise in certain states. It's so tempting right now in the summertime to get together, but do your best to do video, yeah. at least get togethers, or say hi to grandma through the patio door or something. It's yeah. just really frightening these days. Yeah, and um, the gentleman caller you all might like to know turned the big six zero this week. <laughs> and we did a big Zoom, like, a, you know, surprise Zoom for him with his family members all across, literally across the country, even Hawaii. That's great. So it was really fun. And it's, a, you know, it's a good alternative. It's not the same, but yeah. it is a good alternative. So, yeah. It's yeah. going to be so good to hug people again when yeah. this is over. Yeah, absolutely. And it will be someday. Yes. So, Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm listening to a book that I'm really digging. It is called Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry. And this is by Imani Perry. The book came out in 2018, and it won quite a few awards. It won a Lambda and a Penn Award um, for nonfiction biography in 2019. I know it was a New York Times notable book. As I said, I'm listening to the audio. I'm exactly 32% into it. Um, it's narrated by Lisa Gay Hamilton. And she has such a calming voice. It's a comfortable audio book to listen to in a lot of ways. Found myself, though, having to go back a lot. Because her voice mm. is so comforting that I kind of get lulled, you know. Right. So, um, But I didn't know much about Lorraine Hansberry other than, you know, she wrote A Raisin in the Sun which is such a famous play, the first Broadway play by an African-American woman, you know, just so incredibly monumental. And she passed away when she was very young. She was 34 when she died. And I really wanted to learn more about her, and I had no idea of all the things she had done. Um, She's originally from Chicago. She moved to New York City eventually, but she was really involved in the communist movement in the Americas in general. And she was a student of W.E.B. Du Bois, knew people like Richard Wright. I'm uh, just really fascinated by her life and how little her life is out there, you know, in terms of somebody who, you know, I guess it's because she died so young. Did she die of natural causes? Yeah, you know? well, cancer. I don't know how oh, yeah. natural we consider that. I, I guess yeah. it technically is. Hmm. Yeah, but she's an African-American writer, uh, poet, playwright, for people who may not be familiar with her name. And she was very active in social justice issues and really felt that capitalism was part of the problem for ongoing racial inequalities in the world yeah yeah so it's a very it's a very timely read yeah i was gonna say same topics apply right and there was also a pbs documentary that came out about her recently i want to watch when i finish this audiobook 
Maybe that's why it sounds familiar to me, because I think there was a big piece about her in the Times last year as well, or maybe even um, early this year. I can't remember. Yeah. So. I oh, mean, good. she's just such yeah. a force, and it's just so sad that she died so young. Yeah. Because you just think of all that potential that wasn't realized because she was cut down so young. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, too, am listening to a book. It's got a little cuss word in it. Sorry, everybody, but I didn't make the title. It's called Buy Yourself the Fucking Lilies by Tara Schuster. <laughs> and I literally just started it, so I don't know much about it. Um, but she was, was I don't know if she still is, actually, a VP at Comedy Central. Like a really young, up-and-coming, made a name for herself really quickly. And I think this is kind of one of those self-care manifestos where maybe she struck it big young and realized she was losing her way, you know, and losing herself. Yeah. And she narrates it. And I don't remember why I put it on request. I think maybe I read about it in the New York Times book review or something. But it sounds like it's going to be very funny um, just from the, the start of it. So I'm looking forward to that. It's a memoir, so obviously it's nonfiction. And I am listening to it on Libro FM, which, reminder to people, we're an affiliate now. So if you go to the link that we put in the show notes and use the promo code BOOKCOUGARS, you get two credits for the price of one to start you off. And Libro FM, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to partner with them is that they are an open platform and a percentage of their sales go back to independent bookstores so when you sign up you can choose which independent bookstore you want your your sales to go to or you can just be in the general community where they distribute the money across all the independents who are involved in their program right so i'm reading another book i'm showing emily i'm holding this big sucker up it oh, is wow. a big coffee table book, you know, one of those five pounders. Um, and it is the New York Public Library, the architecture and decoration of the Stephen A. Schwartzman building. It's by Henry Hope Reed and Francis Marone with photographs by Anne Day. And this is the big library on Fifth Avenue, the iconic New York Public Library with the lions out front. And this is a book I've seen online. I, I am a proud shopper of the New York Public Library shop. They have such cool book stuff. And it's a little pricey. So I did get it from a library. I was really happy to get my hands on it. And just looking through it so far, it's fascinating because it's a beautiful book. And it has so much information about the creation of the library, the plans, they show behind the scene photographs of models being made for like, you know, different artistic detail in the building, gorgeous photographs of the building, both inside and out. And then it also, which I thought was cool, was it'll take something, it'll take a architectural detail and then it'll break it down to show you to with little arrows of like what the what all the parts are. So it does it with like the big iconic fountains that are out front of the library. And then it'll even do it with something like, like the brackets, these big marble brackets that are inside the library, which is that, which I thought was just a really neat detail to help you really zoom in and see the exquisite detail in this building. Cause 
anyone who's been there, no matter how many times you've gone, you always discover new details. Yeah, I wonder it's going to be so different for you next time you walk in the building. You're going to appreciate it on such a different level. Absolutely, yeah. So I've already decided I am going to save my allowance and buy a copy of this book. Because I think it's a tremendous reference and resource. And just, um, you know, if you're into libraries or architecture, I think you'd love this book. Well, I want to say two things. One, as Chris has been looking at it and she's making that little plastic sound, you know how libraries put that wonderful plastic coating on covers to protect them, you know? The Mylar covers, yeah. Yeah, it just makes me feel like warm and fuzzy inside when I hear that sound. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of my favorite things, like when you're browsing the stacks of the library and you pick up a book, it just... It has a different sound than your books at home. You Absolutely. Yeah. So and also, um, we should let people know that at the end of this episode, we have our author spotlight with Fiona Davis. Yes. Her new book, The Lions of Fifth Avenue, takes place in the New York Public Library. Yes. After it had just opened, you know, it was very new, um, at least one of the timelines of her novel. Right. And the aqueduct that she talks i think she mentions it in our interview yeah there's photographs of that of what was there before the library was built which is kind of cool to see that that was going to be the thing i was going to ask you because she yeah she talked to us about what was in the place where the library was built you know before they decided to build it and they took quite a bit of the what is it the granite i think from that to build the library so they do have pictures of that yeah, there's a picture of it, of this, you know, what, so it, cool. what it looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very cool. I wonder if that book came out recently or did it come out? I wonder if Fiona used it as a reference for her writing. You know what? Let me look here and see what the... It's part of a series called the Institute of Classical Architecture and Classical America. And there are just, what, a dozen or two titles that are listed in the front of different uh you know famous buildings in america and this book the library it had been at the time the largest marble building in the world i believe not just in america but in the world so this one came out initially in 1986 and then it looks like 2011. oh so i bet she did use that as a reference that's really cool well you know what it's saying 2011 but the copyright there is you know Oh, this is a revised, revised sanitary edition. Hmm. So it's been around. It's been words. around, but man, it's yeah. beautiful and the, the photography is gorgeous. And well, yes. well, I'm doing something very unusual for me, which is I'm listening to a second audiobook. Oh, interesting. So I've got what I do. I can always be reading a nonfiction and a fiction, but I've never been listening to a nonfiction and a fiction. So I'm kind of fighting for time, depending on what I'm doing. And um, this one is called Clap When You Land Hmm. by Elizabeth Acevedo. And it's a YA novel. And she's the author who won the National Book Award for Poet X, which is a book I meant to get and never got to. Kind of the same feeling as Homegoing for me. It's like, okay, that book came and went. Let me see what the new one is, you know. And it's getting really great reviews. Um, It's a, and again, this one I also just started yesterday, but it's about a plane crash of a a father's in a plane crash. And he travels back and forth between New York and the Dominican Republic 
I think he works in New York, but his family's all in the Dominican Republic. But it revolves around um, one young woman character who lives in the Dominican Republic, but really wants to go to Columbia and New York City to go to school. And that's as far as I've gotten. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. It's just a little teaser. But um, I'm really interested to read it. And it did. I love the voice. I, I, I don't know if I said the other one I'm listening to is narrated by the author herself. This one is not, I don't think. Or maybe actually, I think it is. I should look that up. But um, really, like the beginning, there is a quote in Spanish, and she read the Spanish, and I just loved the way her voice sounds and flows. So I'm looking forward to digging into it a little bit more. And I, I like every once in a while just reading a good YA novel. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked about that in the past. So yeah. um, I will hopefully have more to report on both of these audios on our next episode. And I literally finished my last book that I was reading, physical book, yesterday. So... Today I get to choose the book I open. It's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so tell us, Emily, what have you just read? I read Saving Ruby King by Catherine Adele West. And this is one, I don't know, partly it has like this bright, really eye-catching orange cover. But I think I also just heard people talking about it and referring to it. I really enjoyed it. It's um, it's fiction, and it's based on a young woman, Ruby, and her mother is, at the very beginning of the book, is murdered in their home. And the book changes different character point of views between Ruby and her best friend, Layla, and Ruby and Layla's two fathers. But also, one of the points of view is the church that they all attend. And I can't say that I've ever read a book like that. It was really interesting. The church is, you know, a common place that holds high regard in this community. And it takes place in the south side of Chicago, Michelle Obama's old stomping grounds. You know, so I felt kind of familiar with it. And the feeling when you read the book, it's kind of this feeling of even though Chicago is this booming metropolis, Southside, it's a neighborhood, you know, and it's really like almost it gets kind of this small town vibe in the sense that people know each other and they know secrets that are kept and they also keep secrets that maybe aren't so healthy. And in this case, it's about domestic abuse. And as I was reading it, it was really interesting to me to think about that. Like, why do people know that someone's being abused, see the signs of it. I mean, this woman who's murdered has shown up at church with black eyes and bruises on her arms and everybody knows her husband is abusing her, you know, but it's just kind of kept unspoken, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's definitely a thread in this book. So when she's found killed, you just, everybody thinks, including raising my hand, you know, the reader, well, it was a, you know, domestic dispute that went, bad took it too far yeah yeah and yeah that's often what happens it's an escalation yeah over time and it's why if you talk to police often they'll say you know domestic disputes are the scariest to walk into you know yeah so the author west she deals with so many big broad issues like prison police and how police come into the neighborhood and have you know, preconceived notions of the people that they're talking to, the bias around that, and then also how these secrets, so what happens is there are secrets from the 
fathers that they dealt with that led to then, you know, as we've talked about recently, traumas that are passed down to the other kids, but also just how it manifests itself in the way that you raise your children and the relationships that are built, especially when you stay living in the same community. Mm-hmm. I thought she did a wonderful job. And I thought at first when I was reading the chapter that was about that from the point of view of the church, I was like, I'm not sure I get what's happening here. But then eventually it completely made sense. You know? Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's good. I'm so glad to hear that you enjoyed it and that it it does have that neighborhood feel because I mean the south side's a huge area and there's mm-hmm. neighborhoods within that area. Right. So I'm glad it has that that feeling. Yeah, I mean, and you understand the geography of Chicago so much more than I do. Obviously, I've just always heard of the South Side. Yeah, you know, right. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah when so, I when I first got my driver's license, I would spend almost every night for months just driving around the city of Chicago, from north to south and east to west, and just really just meandering. And I know, like, I remember one of our family friends yelled at me, like, you, about going to certain neighborhoods. And mm-hmm. at least back then, and that was in the the early 80s, you know, I didn't, I was never afraid right. anywhere. Yeah. And that could have been because I was young and ignorant, but I, I never had that feeling. And, you know, and even as a kid, my parents took us all over the city because mm-hmm. we explored the city a lot together. And that's right. probably one reason why I enjoyed driving around so much to explore it even more. Yeah, I love seeing cities that way. I mean, my preference is to walk cities. Like nothing makes me happier than just spend a day walking across all the neighborhoods of New York, Mm -hmm. you know. But yeah, so you learn to drive in a big city. That's so interesting. I never really thought about that. Of course you did. Yeah, so I never have a fear of driving in a city, really. Although, you know, in New York, that the first time I drove in New York, it was kind of like, whoa, you know, because, <laughs> you know, you do have to be aggressive. And yes, I just finally figured I have insurance. I'm just going <laughs> to drive like a cab driver and get in there. <laughs> That's a good attitude. My yeah. insurance will cover it. So anyway, it's called Saving Ruby King by Catherine Adele West. Awesome. Well, I read one that a lot of people are talking about or reading these days, and it's Me- Mexican Gothic. Mm, yeah. By Silvia Moreno Garcia. And this one has this gorgeous cover. Mm-hmm. Everyone has seen it. I just showed it, uh, held it up to Emily. So it is Gothic, and she does a great job, I thought, of incorporating so many elements and um, nods towards different aspects of the Gothic. And even, you know, blatantly talking about things like Wuthering Heights and different fairy tales. I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And I tell you, she, it's such an imaginative book. I got to start with that because she, she takes the musty, moldy old house slash mansion to a new level. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say, because I don't want to say too much and have spoilers, because I think if you're going to pick this book up, it's one that it's good not to know a lot about and just have it unfold that way. I I do have to say there were parts that were boring, like I I hate to call a book boring, but I was kind of like, oh, okay, you know, Um, parts that were really creepy. And then um, it was never really totally scary, but it had some grossness to it. Hmm. And that is, that's not the area that I like to go down. People exchanging mm-hmm. weird bodily fluids. I'll just say that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's not my bailiwick. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, but overall, I gave it a three stars on Goodreads because I think mm-hmm. it was a solid read. I did like it. Yeah, and I, I have a feeling it could even be one of those books. Like if I was reading it with a book club, I would mm-hmm. probably end up liking it even more to talk about all those details. I So the basic premise, let me just say this. It's a young woman. She comes from a wealthy family in Mexico City, and her dad especially wants her to finally find a mate because, you know, she needs to produce heirs. That's not as blatantly stated in her family as it is the family that her cousin marries into. No, Emmy is her name. I believe that's how you pronounce it. She's the main character. And so her father calls her from this party to say, you know, I've gotten this letter from your cousin. And we, she married last year. We haven't heard much from her. I want you to go and see what's going on because it was a distressful letter. So he says, I don't want you to tell your mom, your siblings, anybody about this. I just want you to go. And if you go and you do this, I'll allow you to go to graduate school like you want to go to. Oh, so a little bit of like um, bribery. Right, exactly. The cousin's name is Catalina. And when Noemi gets to this house where her cousin is now living, things are weird and odd as they are in a gothic novel. But I love the way she describes the differences between these two cousins. And let me just read this paragraph. And so this is Noemi. She's talking about her cousin. So she says... It was the kind of thing she could imagine impressing her cousin. An old house atop a hill with mist and moonlight, like an etching out of a gothic novel. Wuthering Heights and Jane Eyre, those were Catalina's sort of books. Moors and spiderwebs, castles too, and wicked stepmothers who forced princesses to eat poisoned apples. Dark fairies cursing maidens and wizards who turn handsome lords into beasts. No, Emmy preferred to jump from party to party on a weekend and drive a convertible. So, like, I just like <laughs> that, that contra, you know, the uh, contrast between the two cousins. Yeah. Catalina is a little bit older, but she's always been drawn to those gothic type novels and stories. So there's that level, too. Like, oh, is it just her being a little melodramatic? Right. You know, and then No, Emmy is, you know, the party girl. So as I sit here talking about it, I just finished it last night. It is even growing on me more. Right, right. So, and I've know. heard that there's a Spotify playlist that goes along with this book, too. Yeah, I need to check that out. I remember you mentioned that. The novel is set in 1950s hmm. Mexico. And there are, um, our listener Robin mentioned that she did it as a buddy read with her 96-year-old aunt. And her aunt picked up a lot of the references to different movie stars of the time period that, you know, went over my head and Robin's too, it sounds like. So it is historical gothic fiction. Wow. Cool. Nice. So I also read Impersonation by Heidi Pittler. This is a book that was not on my radar and arrived as exciting book mail from Algonquin. And I read the back and I was like, okay, um, this is my next read. It says, together they make the perfect feminist mother, a provocative story of two women caught up in each other's lives. And I've never read her before, but she's blurbed by a bunch of people I've read. And she's buddies with um, Carolyn Levitt, who's going to be a future guest on the book Cougars. 
And basically, it's about a young woman, Allie, who's a ghost writer, which is so interesting because I can't say I've ever read a book where that is a person's main gig, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the thread of the book is about how hard it is to make a living as a ghost writer, even though you might be writing a book for this like super uber famous person who's plenty rich and is going to make plenty of money off of their book that you wrote for them, you know. Right. So she's a young youngish like in her 30s mother single she chose to become a single mother of this young boy Cass so there's a lot of you know trying to make a living as this ghost writer she also works as a landscaper on the side and a substitute teacher she's scrambling to have child care for this kid so I really like just felt all of that and felt like that's such a huge issue in our country and becoming even a greater issue in this time where, you know, child care has shut down and people are trying to work from home and all that kind of stuff. So you really felt her desperation through this book. And then she starts at the beginning of the book, she's writing a um, a ghost writing a book for this very famous guy who's had all these TV shows and he's a total jerk and ends up in the middle of her writing the book getting caught up in the me too movement and accused by several people who have worked for him and with him of sexual improprieties so the book goes down in flames and she doesn't make any money which is horrible situation for her you know and then the phone rings and she gets a call to be a ghostwriter for a woman a very active feminist character woman to write her memoir of mothering her son the only problem and kind of like raising a feminist boy is the idea behind it the only problem is she works so hard she doesn't really raise her kid the nanny does you know yes so my problem so as Allie's trying to query her I mean it was kind of interesting to see the process of like how does a ghost writer write a book you know mm-hmm. and it's supposed to be that the person you're writing about actually gives you some information you know but as she's querying her, it becomes clear, like, she doesn't know a lot about her son. And she can't really answer some of these questions. And she just wants Allie to write this memoir, you know? Yeah. <laughs> All about her. I was actually thinking about our buddy Shuli as I was reading this book. Because Shuli, you know, we've had her on to talk about her memoir. And she has very strong feelings about, like, if you don't really remember a conversation... You know, you can't write it in your memoir like you remember it verbatim. You know, in other words, you're not supposed to make stuff up. <laughs> you know, it's supposed to actually be what you think your memories are, you know? Yeah. So this was, you know, slowly Allie just kind of starts writing a book about herself and her son. And kind of faux-creating this book is what ends up happening. So their lives get very intertwined, and throughout the course of it, Lena or Lana, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, the woman she's writing about ends up getting into the political sphere. So they now know this book is going to be much more in the spotlight and it needs to change and morph and all of this kind of stuff. I really liked it. It was funny. It was poignant. It made me like tense about what it was like for me to be a single mother because there are sometimes these moments of just complete desperation where you feel like, I'm trying to work and make a life for us and cook food and I need help with these children, you know? Yeah. And she's kind of deals with the people in her neighborhood and her landlord and all these people who kind of become part of her life um, as a single mother. So 
I really did like it. Um, and it was a very fast read for me. I highly recommend it. And it publishes on the 18th, August 18th. So right. not too far away. Impersonation by Heidi Pittler. Cool. I was wondering about that one because I was attracted to the ghostwriter idea. There's a thriller out there called The Ghostwriter. Oh. That is a political intrigue type book, I believe. Hmm. That I've I, I see it at the bookstore every now and then, back when I used to browse at the bookstore. Right. Um. <laughs> well, you know, what's interesting that I didn't realize is they sign like an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. Like they're not even allowed to tell anybody they're writing about this person. They're never allowed to talk about the fact that they did this. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You're a total ghost. I mean, that's yeah. why I call it that way. Like your name is not on there at all. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yep. It's a tough gig. Like you have to have control of your ego. Is that even possible? I don't know. But like if you have a big runaway ego, being a ghostwriter would not be a good fit for you. <laughs> no. And it's also like, I mean, I think there must be something that's kind of a relief. Like in a certain way, it's not a reflection on you because nobody knows you wrote it. So if it gets completely banned, you know, it's like, oh, it's, you know, it's Hillary's fault, you know, or whatever. But <laughs> But on the other hand, like how frustrating to feel like your hands are tied that you can't write the book because you're not getting the information or like the first in the first book she was writing, like the guy was such a jerk and she's trying to write a book about him and all his jerkiness, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. And they don't get paid well, I guess, a lot of them. So that's kind of drag, too. Yeah. You know, I'm I forgot to mention that I am still reading Mary Trump's book. Mm, yeah. Um, about her her uncle, and oh gosh, what is, I don't even remember what the title is. Too much, never enough, something to that effect. But I'm at this po point now. I just picked it up again after finishing Mexican Gothic, where she is ghostwriting or starting to, or has been asked to ghostwrite one of her uncle Donald's books. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it's at the point where she's trying to get information out of him payment is something that is starting to come up it is interesting at this mm. point <laughs> yeah i don't think she's gonna ghostwrite a book for him now <laughs> yeah I, I was gonna i wasn't gonna mention that book again until i actually finished it because i'd rather not say the t word more than yeah. i need to but yeah. yeah i also read a short story by willa cather for the willa cather short story project called the enchanted bluff and it was one of her earlier stories that wasn't published, well, it was published in a magazine, um, but then it was uh, published in book form after her death. And it is this wonderful story. It's a, a late summertime story about this group of boys who go on one last camping trip, an over, overnight sleep near this river that's near their town. And it's them talking about different stories and different experiences. They're graduating high school soon and they'll be going their own ways soon. Um, but there was one line in there about the moonrise that I just wanted to share because I loved it so much. And I've experienced a moon like this before. Here's the quote. It came up like a galleon in full sail, an enormous barbaric thing. Red as an angry heathen god. Mm. I just love that. Because yeah. the, the most intense one I saw was I was in Florida. 
at the beach when the moon rose and the my friend that I was with like actually gasped and started moving back because it was coming up so fast and it was so red. I mean, it mm. looked like it was coming right at us. Yeah. And I was like, well, it's the moon. And yeah. I remember thinking, it is the moon, right? I mean, because <laughs> it was <laughs> so intense. Here? Yeah. Well, that's so funny because on Jim's birthday, I forced him to take a sunrise paddle. And it was so weird because the sun came up that day and it looked just like the moon. Mm. Like it was completely white. Wow. It was so weird. And I don't know if it's because it's been really hot and humid here. Yeah. So I don't know if there was like a haze in front of it or something. Mm -hmm. But um, there was no color. You know, like usually we have these beautiful purples or peaches or you know yeah pinks red, yeah. Pink. Yeah. yeah and it was like white this white and I said to him if I didn't know better I'd be totally confused and think <laughs> coming up you know right yeah yeah, yeah this is that's the cool thing like observing nature in that way like it's it's yeah. never the same twice it's you know not, yeah. yeah so that For was sure. that was a really good short story and a nice summer story to read because you could feel being there yeah and reminder, everybody, I'll, I'll plug this for Chris, that she's doing the Willa Cather short story read-along on her blog. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thanks. So we had a joint read-along of Convenience Store Woman. We did. Sayaka Murata. And it was translated by Ginny Tapley Takamori. Right, and I listened to the audio version, which was narrated by Nancy Wu. And I read it, mm -hmm. and I have more tabs in it than pages, I think, I decided. <laughs> right, because it's, it's a short book, but it's so, it it's so powerful in that it, you feel so absorbed in the character's life from, mm -hmm. from the get-go, I felt. I fell in love with Kiko on the very first page. I <laughs> love this book. And it is about a young woman, Kiko, who works in a convenience store in Japan. And the author herself has worked in a convenience store in Japan. Yeah. And the in the book, the character kind of is a lifelong employee in a convenience store. She starts at the age of 18. And when we catch up with her in the book, she's in her late Mid to late 30s, yeah, right? Yeah, she's been there for 20 years, I guess. Yeah. And and the author worked in a convenience store, I think, for like 18 years in different ones. Yeah. So she really yeah. has has it down. Right. You know, what the employees are like, what the customers are like, what the atmosphere the, is like. The sounds and the actual job, the requirements of the job. And um, this author is quite prolific, but this is her first book that's been translated into English. Her second book to be translated into English is called Earthlings, and that is coming out in October of 2020. We did find a couple short stories of hers that I will link to in the show notes that are available online that you can read as well. Um, we did our Zoom read-along last weekend. It yeah, was great. That was fun. It's so great. Thank you, everybody who participated. It's just great to get everybody's feedback on a book and, and you know, their thoughts on it. And because we all pick up different things. And I think that's the joy of a book club. Yes, for sure. And just like you were saying about Mexican Gothic, I mean, sometimes you can be kind of meh 
mm-hmm. on a book. Mm-hmm. I think everybody, we did a thumbs up, thumbs down, right? And I'm pretty sure there were a couple sideways thumbs. Yeah, yeah. And, but then everyone else was thumbs up, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, pretty much, I yeah. think. Yeah, they yeah. were. And I think because it was, it was one of those books that makes you think like you know about Keiko and why is she doing that and you know there's the the creepy guy who's Mm -hmm. the kind of quote loser employee who is smelly disheveled thinks he's smarter than everyone and Mm -hmm. uh, you know he's so condescending and sarcastic about everything and spoiler alert she you know she ends up having him move in with her you know because she's having this pressure from her friends and her family to get a quote real job and to get married and have babies where she has no desire like she's completely happy in her life and that's one of the big points of conversation with this novel is she's completely happy things Mm -hmm. are going well for her but all her friends and family are pressuring her to do i guess you could say what they've done Right, and there's some question about, and I'm using air quotes here, that she's not normal. Mm -hmm. And she's not normal in some of her social etiquette and in how she's choosing to live her life from the standard, the Japanese standards of, you know, the type of job you're going to get. Like a convenience store job would be something you might get when you're 18, but then you would move on to something different. Whereas she's chosen to be in this job, you know, and very happily and doesn't have any desire to change. But once she meets this guy and he moves in with her, people in her life take a different interest in her. And he tells her to quit her job at the convenience store and get a quote office job, even though he's not doing anything, but spoiler camping out in her bathtub. Well, right. Yeah. Cause she can (laughs) then support him better. Right. And they can both, have their families off their backs about not living a quote conventional life. Right. And there was some question that we've all talked about and we've got a couple of listeners who emailed us also about was Kiko actually on the spectrum, mm-hmm. you know, the autism spectrum. I don't, I'm not sure if that's terminology that's used in Japan. That's terminology that we throw out a lot in the States and is in our, Actually, it has been in the DSM. I think some parts of it, like I I would, if I had given her a diagnosis, said maybe she has Asperger's syndrome. But the more we talked about it and the more I read, I think she maybe had some OCD, but really she was kind of a chameleon and she had some odd character traits. But I don't know that I would necessarily say she was on the spectrum. Yeah, I'm not really sure either. I mean, there's there's a scene where... She is in training for this job where they have the employees line up and smile just the same way somebody's smiling in this poster because that's the smile they want their employees to give to customers when they come in. And, you know, there's a line where she says, like, for the first time she felt like she learned how to do that. Somebody showed Mm -hmm. her. And so she has a sister who has been you could say enabling her, helping her, um, making, giving her excuses that she could tell other people to kind of get them off of her back. But no one has really taught her. They've just gone on these expectations and telling her, why aren't you living up to these expectations as opposed to helping her? And I think, you know, that's one of the, the sadnesses of this novel is that there wasn't help and support for her 
Mm-hmm. Because maybe, maybe she, I don't know, like, could she have been more fulfilled? She seemed fulfilled. Yeah. I mean, she seemed like she worked it out. I mean, I do think, you know, perhaps, you know, she could have been on the spectrum. I mean, she certainly could have been on the spectrum. I mean, that's neither here nor there because that's not something that was defined in the book, I don't think. But, you know, what is happiness? And we all are responsible for making our own happiness. And it's, you know, sometimes we do get some great help with that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't. But I feel like she was very satisfied. She was just surrounded by people telling her she shouldn't be. Right. You know, that's interesting, because I'm I'm sitting here, as I, I said that, that she seemed satisfied. Maybe, you know, one of the, if you're looking at this as like an allegory type story, is that like, she doesn't really have emotions right. in, in the way that we're used to seeing characters have emotions and feelings in novels. And she's this perfect cog in the capitalist system. And, you know, maybe the what the writer is trying to say is that this is the ideal capitalist employee yes, who doesn't have any outside interests, who mm-hmm. doesn't do anything other than what the manual and your boss tells you to do. Mm-hmm. You know, so she is like the perfect employee. And it made me think uh, one of the things that came up in our Zoom conversation was the gothic elements of this novel, which Mm -hmm. I really didn't pick up on until I I read the review that's in the the New Yorker. And then um, I think Robin is the one who brought that up in our conversation. And it made me actually think recently about The Shining by Stephen King because that's a novel that I've read twice, once as a teenager and once as, like, when I was in my 40s. And I kind of saw that when I read it the second time in my 40s as a novel that was in some way saying, this is what capitalism wants of its employees, to basically kill its family, kill their mm-hmm. family for the job. Right. You know? And, and so I'm wondering now about the gothic elements because there is mm-hmm. you know there's not the the moldy creepiness mm-hmm. but there is this voice of the convenience store that kiko hears yes you know and that she's drawn back to mm-hmm. and she fits perfectly like she's completely consumed by it so that's kind of a gothic type element Right, which also leads to the that the whole thing about whether she's on the spectrum or not is moot. Mm-hmm. That's not really the point of the book at all, right? Yeah, right. And and she does towards the end the creepiness too is I think where the store she's like the store is in my cells, right? You know, <laughs> like she almost becomes part of the store. Yeah. And you know, and I really felt that, and she you know she hears the door sliding open, and it kind of sucks her back in, and. Yeah. 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 This book said so much in such a short amount of time. It did. I feel like. Yeah. yeah. It really did. And that's one it's one of those books that you feel like you don't think about it as having been in translation because mm-hmm. the writing is so good. You know, that's something I know we've talked about in the past, like how how can you tell if something is a good translation when you don't speak the original or read the original language and I think this is a case of where the translation is so good and the story is so good yeah. and it is translatable to us right? because we all have experience with convenience stores that it seems to be a really good translation. Yeah. I think the work that I had to do was think about putting it in place culturally, mm-hmm. right? 
because the Japanese culture is very different than ours. And so I do think she was making a statement some on that, you know, not to say that we don't have some of that. It's not relevant to some things in our culture. Yeah. But, you know, it was very different, I think. Yeah. Um, so the creepy guy, and I forget his name. Shiraha. Shiraha, right. Yeah. You know, and, and looking at it as different representations of things, I wonder if he could be like representative of an American. Oh, interesting. In Japanese culture, because he is so disheveled and yeah. doesn't care and is doing his own thing. He's a freeloader. Yeah. But when push comes to shove, he knows how to say the right things to get out of right. trouble. And <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Oh, I had a hard time with him. I was like yelling at her, no, don't take him in. But then it's funny because she brings him in and she kind of treats him like an animal. Right, a pet. Like it's right? feeding time. Yeah. Here's her slop. You know, like she didn't really cook much and she didn't like food much. I mean, that's the other thing. Like she was asexual. I don't know what the term is for like non-emotive, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. She didn't really care about food. She was happy to eat the packaged stuff at the convenience store. You know, she, her caring of her body was also that she could be a good employee. You know, she filed her nails so she could work the cash register correctly and kept, she was well kept. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And she her got sleep so she could work well right. the next day. Yeah. And all that. Yeah. yeah. Whereas yeah. he was completely different. And, you know, there is the, the hero in Gothic novels. It's, he's usually somebody who is very attractive very masculine, wealthy, highly intelligent. And mm. so it's he is kind of funny if you put it in the gothic category. That right. he is kind of like kind of like the anti gothic hero. <laughs> Didn't really hit the mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad we read this. Thank you to everyone who joined us and shout we should shout out to our buddy Ryan too, because he's the one that put this book on our radar as a right. good read along. Yes. And we, we haven't chosen the one our next read along and we would love if anyone has any recommendations we're still committed to doing a book in translation mm -hmm. feel free to send us an email bookcougars at gmail.com we're taking solicitations right we are and <laughs> yeah so it just has to be a book that's translated it could be by a woman or a man it should be something that's readily available though so people can can get a copy without too yeah. much hassle Right. And, yeah. and library available, if possible. Several of our readers do that. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I just read one more, and I know we're going to talk about it uh, later, but I did read Cher Ami and Major Wittesley by Kathleen Rooney, which I love, just like you did. Um, so it's about a carrier pigeon named Cher Ami, who is actually, was named as a male pigeon, but is actually a female pigeon. And then Major Wittesley Witt, as he's called by a lot of people. So it's both of their stories told in alternating chapters. I am totally in love with this pigeon. Like, <laughs> you know, I don't really read a lot of World War I fiction or nonfiction anymore because I did kind of get a little burnt out on it at one time. And I tend not to read books about animals and or children. Mm. But this is one of those books where I immediately love the pigeon's voice. And mm -hmm. completely drew me in. And I love what she did with Jeremy as the living creature and then as this voice of a pigeon that's been taxidermied and is now in a museum who could see the big picture and reach out to people after her death. 
And just some of the, the lines were just, I thought, so beautiful. Rooney also plays around with gender and sexuality a lot. And so Cherami, who has this male name, and most of the keepers think she's a he, don't mind when the bird gets up close and personal with another female bird. Because they think, oh, they're bonding, they're going to mate. But Cherami right. is actually a lesbian bird who is in love with a bird called Baby Mine. There's one line that I just love that's one of those that I noted, and this is Cherami. She turned and flew to my side, and the air we breathed became oxygenated with joy. Mm. Just love that line. I mean, there are so many beautiful lines in this novel, and I know Mm. we're going to talk about it later because we've had a wonderful discussion with Kathleen Rooney about the novel. Yeah, so she'll be coming up on on episode 109. Yeah. Yeah, she's great. She's so much fun to talk to. We had to, like, control ourselves, Oh, actually. I know. I mean, and when I finished the novel, I was like, oh, man, I could, like, ask her a million more questions. It's a really easy-to-read novel in some ways. It's hard, too, because it is dealing with war, and there are a lot of war scenes that are gruesome. But it brings up so many questions. Mm-hmm. So many questions about that time period, about human nature, where we are now. Just an amazing She's, she's a great writer. Yeah. I, yeah. I highly, highly recommend this novel. So did you go on any Biblio adventures? I did indeed. I had a wonder, I had actually a real true Biblio adventure out in the world. And I had a couch Biblio adventure. I'll, I'll go with the, that one first. I attended an event. This was through the Historical Novel Society, the New York chapter. And they had a conversation with Alea Johnson, who's a writer of primarily speculative fiction. She writes young adult and adult novels. Her new book is called Trouble the Saints. Mm. And it's set in New York City around World War II. And it deals with um, an African-American woman who's really good with knives, who somehow gets involved with like the mob. So, I mean, it sounds like a fascinating book and it deals a lot with race and family of origin issues. I really look forward to it. And this writer, um, so I hadn't heard of Alea Johnson prior to this event, but that novel sounded really interesting to me. And she's also, she's born in the U.S. and now lives in Mexico. She's lived there, I think, for like six, seven years and she had gone there for on a two-week grant as a student and fell in love with the place. And she studied languages in college and is fluent in Spanish. So she decided she wanted to live there. And she recently completed her master's degree. Her thesis explores fermented food and its ritual symbolism in pre-conquest Mexico. And I thought that oh, sounds my. fascinating as a thesis. And I figured yeah. you'd be interested too as a foodie yeah. um, about that. So she just seems like a really intriguing person. She lived in New York for a while and she started the novel, her new one, uh, Trouble the Saints, while she was living there. And of course, then finished the, the bulk of it in, in Mexico. And I think, you know, you, see, you hear so much about writers writing about a place where they have lived, but now they're moved someplace different and they have such a different perspective. You know, I guess, you know, like Cherami, they get that bird's eye perspective of a place and some distance 
Right. I mean, Kathleen Rooney's, her two novels have been taking place in New York and she lives in Chicago. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But they're definitely love letters to New York. So, right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And how about you? I did two did a couch biblio adventure and I have an answer to what we talked about in episode 107, which is a mighty blaze. Their Facebook live videos are available on YouTube. Very cool. So you don't have to have Facebook to watch them. So for this one, I will put a link um, in the show notes that takes you directly to it. This was just one of those really quick, what do they call them? They call them glam cam debut spotlights. (laughs) And it was, was with Nancy Johnson, who's the author of The Kindest Lie, introducing Catherine Adele West the day her book Saving Ruby King was published but now this I was just watching it after I had read the book so Mm -hmm. it was so great just to hear her little there are these little short like five minute kind of giving the author a chance to do a little elevator pitch about what their book is about so if you want to hear a better description of saving ruby king than mine you can go (laughs) to the show notes and look up this um, link it'll take you to youtube and it'll take you to these two authors discussing Saving Ruby King. I really enjoyed it. And they have a host of interviews now available on YouTube that you can check out. Yeah, they've been blazing along since this pandemic started. They've been doing such great work for literature and books and authors. It's wonderful. Yeah, and they're interviewing bookstore owners and they're interviewing, you know, like big wigs like John Irving. And who did they have on yesterday? Um, Cheryl Strayed. You know, so lots of heavy hitters. And if you're looking for some couch biblio adventures, that would be the way to go. Great. Yeah. (laughs) So the real life adventure I went on, um, I went to the Old Lyme Phoebe Griffin Noise Library in Old Lyme, Connecticut. It's about a half hour from Guilford. I had put um, a book on hold there, that library book I mentioned earlier. I had requested it on hold. And then when I was looking at my account, I saw it was checked out. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I called the library and, you know, I asked how I would pick it up. And she said, yeah, we check them out. And then they're out on tables underneath tents, Mm -hmm. alphabetically sorted by your name. So come anytime. So I was like, great, thank you. And then she called me back, the librarian, just a few minutes later. And she's like, you know, I was looking at your account. She's like, and there's also a DVD that you requested. You requested it to go to another library, but we actually have it do you Hmm. want me to put it with your hold and I was like oh my gosh thank you yes that'd be great so I don't I was probably just not paying attention obviously when I because in our system you select that you want to put it on hold and then you scan through the list of libraries where you want to pick it up right and I just my uh trigger finger was a little right too too early (laughs) on that so it was it's a beautiful old library it was built in 1898 and Phoebe Griffin just sounds like an amazing woman. She was born in the late 1700s. She was pretty highly educated for a woman of her time. She was educated with her brothers who were going off to Yale. Mm. Yale. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I go Yale. You do, (laughs) but I don't want to correct you. Uh, (laughs) Sorry, Kate. Um, But beautiful. It's currently undergoing a really big, it's a $4 million renovation project. It's had some additions over the the years as well, um, but they're currently in the midst of of doing this one. So the library is closed, I think, because of the pandemic as well as the work that's going on. But I did a blog post on it if you want to see some photos 
It's a really handsome building. Yeah, I will put a link to that in the show notes. It was a great post. I love New England libraries. I know I say that all the time, but they're so beautiful. They really are. And this one, if you go to the library's website, which I did link on that blog post, there's this wonderful photograph of it in the early 1900s. It's on Old Lyme Road, which is in the historic district of Old Lyme. And it's just this curvy road, you know, and the library is right there on the curve. So as you're traveling, I guess it'd be north, like you see the library right there. And it's Mm -hmm. lovely. And that historic photograph is just wonderful. And the library is actually built on land that uh, Phoebe was born on. It was part of the, the land that her family owned. Great. Yes, well, so I read her, um, Chris's blog post. I highly recommend you do. I will put it in the show notes. I did one other couch biblio adventure, which I've been wanting to do for weeks. And this was with Politics and Prose, the, the well-revered uh, bookstore down in D.C. And this was with the author Mega Mujumdar, who's the author of A Burning, which I've talked about on previous episodes. And then C. Pam Zhang, who's the author of How Much of These Hills is Gold, which has the most beautiful cover. I'm sure folks have seen it around because it's doing really well. And it, it, that's a book that's all about the gold rush back in the day. So it was in conversation with them. But I have to say, the person at the bookstore that introduced them, I just want to tell you, like a lot of us have been talking about when you're on videos and watching people talk we even talked about this on our zoom discussion and you see like some of the people in our zoom group had these beautiful bookshelves and you just want to say like give me a tour of your bookshelf (laughs) and a lot of time the authors you know that were watching on these book events are sitting in front of bookshelves well the woman who introduced them i don't know if she was actually at politics and prose or not but she's sitting in front of all these bookshelves and all the books are turned backwards. <laughs> it made me angry. Like I felt filled with rage. <laughs> and I'm like, boy, I'm like, you can't be satisfied. You're complaining like when people are sitting in front of books that you want to like, stop talking. I want to look at your books. But then when they're all backwards, you're like, right. Like I wanted to say like, what? is happening but it was already you know this was already recorded i was just watching a recording but yeah oh, i thought that was really funny yeah but um just interesting things to point out mega is an editor at catapult which i had no idea and then Pam Zhang was talking about they were both asking each other about their writing process and she said she writes you know on a computer and then she reads it to herself out loud and records it hmm. and then listens to it and then edits. Interesting. I thought that was fascinating. Like, I've definitely heard of people reading things out loud. Mm-hmm. And I'm a reader out loud when I'm, you know, working on writing things up for someone to read. But I just thought that was so interesting. And what an added step in the process, you mm-hmm. know. And the other thing she talked about is that the first 15 pages of her book, she did not use pronouns. She specifically wanted to make the character genderless to start. Just to build your understanding of this person. Interesting. And I thought that was so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So I really want to read that book. It's been on my radar. And my book club talked about reading it, and then for some reason we chose something else. But I think we're going to put that as an upcoming for us. And just a reminder that a lot of these bookstores do record their events. Some do not. 
but a lot do. So if you're, you know, hankering for a couch biblio adventure, check out some of these bookstores that are kind of like, like politics and prose is so on my wish list of bookstores to visit. So it just feels fun to be able to see one of their events. And they have several, many like recorded events that were actually in the bookstore when the bookstore was open. You know, this particular one I'm talking about was a Zoom, yeah. you know, event. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel quite the same as watching one of their recorded ones where someone's standing in the middle of their bookstore. Right, yeah. yeah. I've been seeing some events come up where you do have to buy the book or you have to buy a ticket <laughs> to attend yeah. the uh, online event. So. Yeah, yeah. Just check them out. And some of them have... You, where you don't, but they only give a limited number of those, you know, also. So, yeah, definitely get out there. And if you have a favorite author coming out with a book, get, check out their website because a lot of them are listing tons right. of events. Yeah. You know? And it's, you know, if you're paying for the event, it's a great way to support the bookstore mm-hmm. to do that if you can. Yeah. yeah. And to get a copy of the book. So upcoming John's. I have one, and it's with Heidi Pittler, who wrote that book, Impersonation, that I just talked about, in conversation with our buddy Carolyn Levitt, and it's on Wednesday, August 19th, through Brookline Booksmith. Carolyn will be talking about her book, With or Without Me, and Heidi will be talking about Impersonation. So I'm really excited to see those two in conversation. Nice. Yeah, I have two. Well, August 4th. Fiona Davis has, that's the day her book comes out, The Lions of Fifth Avenue. She'll be doing an event with the New York Public Library that you can register for. You do need to register for that on the library's website. And then August 5th, Isabel Wilkerson's has an event at the Schomburg Center, which is a branch of the New York Public Library, for her new book, which is called American Cast. Her Cast in America. Cast in America. I'm not sure. <laughs> I didn't write it down point. because I didn't think I'd forget. And of course, my 54-year-old brain has forgotten. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's cast in America. And both of us are signed up for it. We, You do have to register. Yeah. Um, and you don't have to buy a book, but yeah. you can. They also have an amazing bookstore at their... At the Schomburg Center. Yeah, Yeah. they do. And and we mentioned this event last time. Wilkerson's first book was The Warmth of Other Suns, which was about the Great Migration. This book I've heard, I've just seen highlights of reviews calling it like an instant American classic because it's looking about, it's looking at cast and I think it looks at cast also in India, America, and another country. Which is, you just answered your question then. So we what? both got the title wrong. What? <laughs> it's, not, it's not just about America. So it's called Cass, colon, The Origins of Our Discontents. Okay, there we go. All right. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's getting incredible reviews. And I know she's a fantastic writer. I really want to read both of her books. What about upcoming reads, speaking of wanting to read books? I have two. I have The Jane Austen Society by Natalie Jenner. This is an upcoming book for my book club. I am not an Austenite. Is that how you say it? Sure, yeah. So we're going to see what happens for me reading this book. And then the other one is Intimations, Six Essays. And this is by Zadie Smith. Hmm. 
And it just came out, I think, in July. And it's six essays that she wrote that are kind of reflections of hers on the year 2020. I have tried to read Zadie Smith without much success. I feel like she's way too brilliant for my brain. I've heard her speak, and she's so compelling. Yeah. But um, I'm going to try this one because essays seem like a good way to go for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. So. Yeah, I tried to get into one of her novels, and I it didn't grab me either. Was it White Teeth, I think, maybe? Yeah. There's yeah. On Beauty, or, White Teeth. Short story collection, I think, maybe that was. I'm not oh, sure. okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, interesting you? that you're reading an Austin-related book because my book club pick for August is Persuasion by Jane Austen. Ah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was her last fully completed novel. And it came out six months after she died. Um, it came out in 1817. And it's a... Austin novel I've read it once before and I really enjoyed it and it's one of those novels that I didn't anticipate enjoying as much as I did because I Mm. love Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility but Persuasion really captured my heart so I'm excited that the book club chose this one and I didn't attend our last meeting but when I got the email saying what the book was I was like oh perfect because oh good I think um, there's a there was an I don't know if anybody's picked it up this year but in the book blogging community there's been an annual Austin in August readathon where people read all sorts of Jane Austen related books and obviously her novels and watch movies and everything which is a lot of fun and I have to say on the subject of Jane Austen when I worked at Borders there was this young woman who came in. She was maybe 16-ish or so. She came up to talk about, to ask about the availability of some Jane Austen books. She had a three-inch binder that was her Jane Austen binder. And she had it organized, you know, with different dividers, novels by Jane, novels, of, you know, based on Jane's life, novels based on different novels of her, movie adaptations. I mean, it was amazing this book Um, but she'd been an Austin fan since she was a little girl and I just think like damn I wish I would have gotten her phone number because I would love to (laughs) talk with her about her binder yeah yeah it's so interesting that she would bring her binder to the store too yeah you know like well that's pretty precious yeah and you know she had a checklist that she wanted to talk about so we all oud and odd over that that binder so very cool cool. yeah the the other thing um it's not a read it's a video i'm gonna watch it's that other one i picked up at the old lime library it's called the people's palace a portrait of the new york public library so i look forward to this it's a pbs video a film by it looks like coonhart productions and 13 slash wnet new york it's an hour-long video so Laura and I will be watching that this weekend. Well, that's a perfect segue to our interview with Fiona Davis about her book, The Lions of Fifth Avenue. Yes. We had such a we, wonderful conversation with her about this novel. We did. And I have, I'm holding a copy of the book in my hands. The book releases on Tuesday, the day that this podcast airs. We have a copy to give away. So if you're interested in being entered in the giveaway, join our newsletter. You can do that on our website, bookcougars.com. You'll be automatically entered if you are on our newsletter subscriber list. We're going to pick a winner on August 7th. Right on. 
So get busy, get signed up if you're not. We promise we don't sell our list or send you multiple emails. We usually send one newsletter a month. Right. Yep. All right. Enjoy yeah. our interview with Fiona. We had such a great time talking with her. We were supposed to be talking with her in person yeah. at Book Expo, but she was a good sport and we Skyped in together instead. We're so excited to welcome back Fiona Davis, who's been our guest in the past on episode 82. Fiona is the nationally best-selling author of The Dollhouse, The Address, The Masterpiece, and The Chelsea Girls, all of which center around a historic building in Manhattan. Fiona herself is a proud New Yorker. She's a graduate of the College of William and Mary and of the Columbia Journalism School, which plays a part in her new novel, The Lions of Fifth Avenue. We're so excited about this book and to see you again, Fiona. Thank you so much for, for having me on again. I'm absolutely honored. Would you mind doing a little bit of a synopsis of the new book for our Not listeners? That would be great. Um, so The Lines of Fifth Avenue takes place at the New York Public Library. And there are two different timelines. In 1913, the wife of the superintendent lives in the building with her husband and two kids in an apartment that actually existed for the superintendent's family. And she's surrounded by all this knowledge, but feeling stifled and wanting to get out in the wider world. And so applies to and gets into Columbia Journalism School and kind of opens up her world. And then in 1993, it's from the point of view of a curator who's putting uh, together a rare book exhibit. And she discovers a rare book has gone missing and is drawn into a series of thefts that occurred in 1913, as well as a tragedy that occurred to the superintendent's family back then. And it's really about the magic of the written word and the power of women's voices. That's a great synopsis. Yes. <laughs> Chris and I both loved this book so much, and we yes. both love the main branch of the New York Public Library as well, which is really, as your other books, you know, it plays a character in this book, which is so fun, you know, because it's a building that we have in our hearts, but also have spent time in as well. And both of the first chapter, which starts in the, the era of 1913, and then the second chapter, which takes us to 1993, begin with the lions that are out front of the building, which of course are so iconic, currently wearing masks yes. like the rest of us when they're outside. So can you talk a little bit about the history of those lions and the building itself and how you researched all of it? Sure. Yeah. I did a real deep dive into the research, um, which I always do as just to start to figure out what surprises me and what interests me um, and what might be a good plot point. And so I learned that the, when the library was built, it, it, before the library was there, there was the Croton Reservoir, which was this huge reservoir with 50-foot-high granite walls um, that supplied the drinking water for New York. And it, it, so it was like this lake in the middle of the city, and you could walk on this promenade around the top. Wow. And that was taken down, and they put up the library. It took nine years and $9 million to build. It, when it was built, it was the largest marble structure in America. And you can actually see in the foundation from one of the interior courtyards, the rocks and the, the granite from the Croton Reservoir that was kind of put into the foundation of the library. And when it opened in 1911, it had 150,000 visitors its first day, 
It had one million books. And it's unusual in that um, it's, it's this huge building. And the reading room, the Rose Reading Room, which is at the very top floor, is this beautiful room that the architects not only designed the building, they designed the desks, the lamps, the waste baskets, the level of detail that they put into it was just astonishing. And then below the Rose Reading Room is the stacks, and that's where all the books are held. And what a lot of people don't know is that it's not a lending library. You can't check out books. It's a research library. So you go in, you give your call slip, and they, they send it down. In the past, it was down a pneumatic chute down to the stacks. And then pages would run around and grab the books and then bring it back. And it would go back on this kind of conveyor belt back up to the reading room. And so it's like this beehive, this kind of vertical, you know, beehive of books. And so it, it, it's just a, a remarkable building. When you walk in, your breath is taken away yeah. um, because it's just so beautiful. Absolutely. Yeah. And the amount of tourists that are there, I love the um, the opening um, with the 1993 curator who was kind of a little bit resentful about all of the tourists streaming in. <laughs> and I've had that feeling too sometimes when you're there to do work, it's, you know, you have to negotiate around all of these tourists who are there, um, which is, you know, a great thing that so many people are loving the library. Yeah, definitely. And now, especially with it being, you know, empty, I think it's going to just start opening up. Things are starting to open up just now. Um, and so I, I think they will welcome back everyone who, who wants to come on in. Yeah, <laughs> the sure. curator in my book is a little prickly, so her, her <laughs> point of view is necessarily anyone else's. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she is. I, I really enjoyed all of the characters um, in this book, the, the prickly ones and the not so prickly. How did you, you know, why did you pick these two? I mean, I know why you picked the 19 teens, because the library is new. But why 93? 93 I chose because I wanted to base it, the book theft that occurs in the book, on one that occurred in 1994 to Columbia University's Butler Library, where a thief stole $1.8 million worth of manuscripts and rare books over the period of three months. And they couldn't figure out how this was happening. And, and so I needed the technology at the time to be similar in order to pull off the heist. Yeah. Um, and so the 90s made sense. And I, ha I don't think I'd written in that decade before. So it was something fresh and new. And also it was I was in the city at that point, so I could draw on some of my memories um, from that period. And it was a, it was an interesting one. You had, you know, the club CBGB's plays a, you have a punk rock club in the book, which is kind of unexpected in a book about libraries. <laughs> but the city was like that, you know, it was a little schizophrenic. So it was fun to capture that. You know, one of the things that I had never heard of was the notion of a shelf read which was something that they had to do when when something goes missing. So was that something that you knew about before you were researching heists and things like that? No, I was lucky enough to meet uh, a woman named Jean Ashton, who was the librarian at Columbia at the Butler Library during the time of the theft. And I was able to talk to her about kind of what it was like emotionally to be going through that and were the staff turning on each other, how... How did it work? And and so she was the one who told me all about how you had to do a shelf read where you went one by one through every book, which, you know, is this most painstaking process to find out what's missing. And maybe something had just been misshelved and you had right. to that out before you called in, you know, the investigators. 
Right. And the reason that they kind of can turn on each other is because, as you mentioned, that, you know, people aren't able to just get access willy nilly to these books. There's a whole process involved. So when something goes missing, it's it's pretty easy to implicate your peers instead of, you know, looking elsewhere. Exactly. And even, you know, the security is very tight, even to the point where when I, you know, they gave me a wonderful behind the scenes tour of the library and showed me where the old apartment was and um, which is now offices and storage. But I couldn't get into the stacks. I could peer in through the window, um, but I was not allowed in there. So they take it very seriously. Well, as your characters, you know, make the point, you know, these are national they're, they're treasures, they're world treasures of our civilization, um, and not just Western civilization, but they have holdings from all over the world, rare books. And so it's just so important to that security. I, I'm all for it. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that Jean Ashton said to me when I was interviewing her was that, you know, libraries are the safekeepers of artifacts of the past. And, and then they're rediscovered as scholars, you know, look into things as times change. So something that might not have been valuable, like a woman's diary or records of, of slave holdings. A hundred years ago, they wouldn't have been valuable, but a hundred years later, as thinking has evolved, they really are. And libraries are the ones who are keeping these things safe, no matter what their value uh, in the outside world. And therefore, you know, you can't just judge it on the cost of paper and the, the cover or, or what you could get it in, in the market. It's more than that. It's a part of, of civilization and culture that needs to be taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I love the parts about uh, Greenwich Village and the women's movement that was, you know, birthed there and growing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because you, in that uh, section, you do mention historic people uh, like Margaret Sanger and Mabel Dodge. And I'm just curious about how much fun it was to research that period. What a period of time. It was back when it was called The New Woman um, was kind of emerging as women were really questioning what their traditional roles were and what they should be. And this, in 1912, a, a feminist named uh, Marie Jenny Howe founded the Heterodoxy Club. And they met every two Saturdays at a restaurant in Greenwich Village. And it was open discussion and debate about, you know, birth control and the right to vote, even free love. And they were really kind of hashing out these things that were, were so vital back then and are still vital today. And it was a place where women could just speak freely and learn about things that, you know, they might otherwise have, have, have not known about or encountered. And so, yeah, my character, Laura, gets taken to, to one of the meetings and gets kind of caught up in that. And, and so it was really fun to do all this research, especially because I don't know if you've seen the, the show Mrs. America with Kate Blanchett, no. which is set in the 70s. It's great. And it's all about the women's liberation movement. And as I was watching it, I was thinking, oh, they did this all in 19, 1910s. You know, this, right. was, this was all on the table at that point. But at the same time, in my research, I would do things like um, go through women's magazines like Harper's Bazaar and find things like the barrel diet. And that was a diet for women where you would buy a barrel and you would take out the ends and you would festoon it with ribbons and then crawl inside it and roll around until you were sweaty. And that was 
exactly. <laughs> so there was a whole article on the barrel diet. Wow. So in a way, you know. <laughs> Oh, wow. wow, like that's yeah. an early version of the treadmill, it sounds like. Yeah. Well, what was great about that section was how much they were creating, um, you know, words and new language for concepts that they were creating, you know, like calling a, a woman, are you a monotonist? Yes. You know, or a, a, a varietyist. Was that the word? Varietist, yeah. A varietist, yeah. Um, and that's just fascinating because that's, you know, one of the things about any movement is new words and concepts are created. So it's kind of cool to see that happening in, in those sections of the book. Right, right, as we're defining these brand new ideas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Fiona, one of the parts of the book that I found fascinating was the whole notion of, you know, the donors coming in to tour, you know, some of these artifacts a little bit early and just the whole idea that the kind of the the archivists and the librarians and the superintendent are held accountable to people who are helping to fund the work that they're doing. And I was wondering if you came across any of that I, you know, when you were talking to the librarians about, you know, when things are being stolen, if they have to start worrying about the funding to the library, if there's a risk with that. Yeah, you know, it was more in my research, there are some wonderful books written about library theft. And and in those, they really talked about this dynamic between um, when, when there is a big theft, what to do because it's a PR nightmare. Mm -hmm. If they can't keep their objects safe, no one will give them money. Right. And, and so yet at the same time for the librarians, it's very important to get the word out that there's been a theft because there's a better chance of recovering it if all the book dealers and sellers are aware that something might be showing up. Um, because it's a small world, the world of, of antique books and rare books. And so, you know, for example, with Jean Ashton, she was really relieved when this theft was happening at Columbia that they didn't sweep it under the rug, that they addressed it and got the word out as quickly as they could. And because of that, they eventually caught the thief. Oh. Um, but yeah, so it, it's, a, you know, it's a, it's a really tricky situation between the longevity of the library and, you know, finding these things that have been taken. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you the, you cover so much in this book, you know, down to when new items are purchased by a library, do they deface that object with a marker of ownership or not? Um, did you have conversations with librarians about that, or was that something you came across in your research? That was a lot in the research, um, especially with something as rare as like Virginia Woolf's Diaries or a Walt Whitman poem that's, you know, an early draft they would never put a library stamp or, or a, a sign on that. But for the other items, it, you know, it's, it's hard to know what to do. Some libraries have a certain mark on page 92, um, and therefore you know that that was the item that was stolen. But again, it's this balance between keeping these items safe that have existed for hundreds of years already or locating them if, if they're taken. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. You know, I was um, listening to an interview with an author recently who's, you know, in her 80s, and she had mentioned that she was starting to go through her items just, 
you know, thinking about her children as we all do, like, oh, there's so much paper in this house. Let's get rid of some of this paper. And she threw away all of her diaries. And the person, see, Fiona just went, oh, the person <laughs> interviewing her was like, why would you do that? And she said, because nobody wants to read that. You know, and they're like, everyone wants to read your diaries. You know, <laughs> you might not want them to do it now, but 20 years from now, that might be really important, you know. Especially because we don't keep them now. Or if we do, they tend to be on the computer. Right. And, and, you know, drafts of books are you don't see because they're on the computer. You You can't go through the manuscripts and see how... Walt Whitman scratched out a word or put a put a coffee cup on it, not realizing it would be worth tens of thousands of dollars one day. And so, yeah, it, it's just such a shame. I think with computers, we're we're losing um, the process of creation, mm-hmm. and and also just like that everyday lives, right? Mm-hmm. A diary of an everyday life of what her life was like in probably the the twentieth century. How valuable that is right now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for yeah. sure. And I, I really want to thank you for writing about a lesbian character who, you know, you, there's a part where you talk about telling stories to, of, you know, women or people who've done these, you know, fantastic things and took risks in their lives as inspiration for current generations. And you draw this parallel between Virginia Woolf's diary and then Laura Lyons, the main, one of the main characters, and how all of her diaries and letters were destroyed because of the probably homophobia and just how those lives have been lost to history. So by reimagining her life and setting it in, you know, the scenes with the Greenwich Village, which is becoming a focus now for people who are interested in LGBTQ history, I just thought was just really well done. And I just want to thank you for that. Oh, no, thank you. I, I think in my research of reading about Greenwich Village in the 1910s and just realizing how open people were, it was this wonderful kind of nirvana where you could be whoever you were. Mm-hmm. And there were men with men and women with women. And it was, it, you know, we think in the 60s was when all that started mm-hmm. happening. But there was this this wonderful period before the war where, you know, you could be whoever you were and it was a safe place. And and so I think it, part of it is in, so interesting to me how these cycles occur of, oh, you know, everybody needs to hide who they are. And then, OK, it's all right. You know, Supreme Court passed the, you know, you can get married. And so now it's open. But then we cycle back if we're not careful. Yeah, it's yeah. that that phrase history repeats itself. I always think it's so interesting with historical fiction how um, where you blend the fact and the fiction. And I think we've talked to you about that before. So when you were doing your research, was that whole aspect of Nirvana that you were talking about? Did that surprise you or was that something that you were aware of? No, it surprised me um, in reading accounts, in reading nonfiction accounts of that time just being so, I was really surprised. But then there were other things that happened, like a woman um, decided to keep her maiden name and had that on her mailbox. And it caused huge problems. There were, there was outcry in the press about how this would ruin marriage and, you know, letters to the editor about how terrible this was. And so again, you had this movement of everybody feeling a lot of liberty, but then 
society as a whole coming down and kind of crushing it. Yeah, one of my favorite lines of the book is talking about Laura's father, and you describe him as a man pickled in misery. <laughs> I just thought, well, I, I've come across some people like that. Yeah, I was just going to say, I know some people like that. <laughs> we all do. Yeah. Well, Fiona, your book releases on August 4th. Yeah. And as we all know, there's been a little hiccup in book tours going on these days. So can you tell the listeners, you know, how they can find out where you're going to be? Yeah, sure. And thank you for the opportunity. If you go to my website, FionaDavis.net, there's an events page and all the events, there's about half a dozen or about a dozen listed there now and many more to come. There's a lot going on where I'll be doing virtual talks with libraries and and, um, booksellers. And the first one will be August or the first kind of real jump off one will be August 4th in conjunction with the New York Public Library, which will be really, really wonderful. And I'm, I'm so looking forward to that. And if you um, join that one and buy a book through there, you can get a, a, a signed book sent to you. So keep an eye out. And yeah, FionaDavis.net. That's great. And we'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah. So have you been able to go somewhere to sign books or have they been sending them to your house? How is that process working? So far, they've been sending me book plates, which then I sign and and they put they're going to put them in the book. Um, and we're just trying to figure out what's the best method to get people personalized books. So, um, you know, and if if you check out me on Facebook at uh, Fiona Davis Author or on Instagram at Fiona J Davis, I'll be posting all that information as we as we figure that out. Great, it's a brave new world. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's great. And we'll put all of those links in our show notes so people can track you down on whatever platform they're into. I wanted to just say one other thing that um, I loved about the book that I talked about when I, when I did talk about this book on an earlier episode was that you, in the night, the era of 1993, the family plays the game operation, (laughs) which I just loved that game as a kid. And as soon as I read (laughs) that sentence, I could hear the buzzer, you know, <laughs> that goes off. For those who don't know, Operation is a game where it's like a, a person on an operating table. That's what the game board looks like. And there's little plastic bones that are surrounded by metal. And then the, there's a tweezer where you're trying to remove these plastic bones. And if you hit the metal, you hear that. Uh, <laughs> and it lights up. Yes. <laughs> so I just wanted to thank you for that memory because it brought back hours of pleasure that I had <laughs> playing that game as a kid. I went the same way. I loved it, which is why I mentioned it. And I have to tell you, as a total research geek, I actually ordered a copy of it because I couldn't remember quite what it looked like or what I wanted to be able to really describe it well. So I have a copy of Operation in my closet. If you ever come over, we'll play. Oh my gosh. Well, yes. I will definitely <laughs> take you up on that. Because I can't remember the last time I had one of the games in my in my possession. So thank you. Oh my gosh, that'd be so much fun. That's a future video for sure. Yes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> operation Deathmatch. Yeah. Yes, I was just gonna say we can have an operation off. <laughs> Well, Uh, Fiona, would you mind, or is it too soon to talk about what you're working on next? Sure. No, you know, there's a lot of lead time between when the book comes out and when it's handed in. So um, I've been working on a book that is set at the Frick Collection. 
And that's a museum on Fifth Avenue that was a residence for Henry Clay Frick and his family. And then after his death became this wonderful, wonderful art museum. And it's this really incredible building. And, um, and I'm kind of playing around with it. It's, it's an interesting cast of characters and a beautiful place to, to work. Uh, that's actually a building I've never been to. So I'll have to go in preparation for reading the book. Yeah, it really is a hidden gem of New York. If, if you've been there, it, it tends to be one of the most favorite museums in New York. Um, for those who've seen it, it just goes right up to number one. Unfortunately, the Frick is closed right now, but luckily for me, in terms of research, they have a virtual tour online where I can go into any room and look around. Cool. Oh, wow. And so, thank goodness. It, yeah. Is that something that's available to anyone? Yeah. Oh, the, okay. Yeah. I think it's frick.org, Frick Collection. And yeah, you can go go check it out. You'll, you'll oh, love it. Very cool. We, we will. That's great. Fiona, thank you so much for taking time out to talk with us today. For those of you who are looking for a fantastic, just get lost in character type of book, this is the perfect one. And if you're a reader and a lover of libraries, that is, makes it all the better. It was yeah. such a fun read. Well, thank you very much. And thanks for having me again. You guys are the best. <laughs> oh, thanks, thanks Fiona. Fiona. Take care. Take care. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>